Hi, my name is Brynn Matheny, and I'm a character designer on Scoob, and you're listening to a podcast named Scooby-Doo. Yeah! The gang's all here, they're on the case, and there's no ghost that they wouldn't face, cause they dig it, dig it, dig it, Scooby-Doo! Yeah, they Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of a podcast named Scooby-Doo, the show that attempts to unravel 50 years of mysteries, meddling kids, and masked villains. My name is Mike Josic, and I'll be your guide through all things ghostly and groovy as I investigate every angle of every mystery and beyond. So grab yourself some Scooby snacks, fire up the mystery machine, and let's start the show. Come on, come on, it's off to school for you. Well, now let's see. Here we are. Playground, movies, school. Bye, dear. Bye, Mom. See you in orbit. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 35 of the podcast. On this installment of the show, I'm going to be doing another DC Hanna-Barbera conversation. Uh, as some of you may know, I have been and, and still am a big fan of the DC Hanna-Barbera books, alternately known as Hanna-Barbera Beyond. When they first came out, I really didn't know what to think of them as, as the books started rolling out. Scooby Apocalypse was, I believe, the first book that came out. Or maybe it was Flintstones. Might have been Flintstones. Anyways, I picked up Scooby Apocalypse because, of course, the Scooby connection, and I was a huge fan of J.M.D. Mateus and Keith Giffen. Kind of slowly came around to the other books. Oh, also Future Quest, because Jeff Jeff Parker and and Evan Shaner. It was great stuff. Now, that first wave of uh, DCHB books was met with a certain degree of commercial and critical success, and a wave two uh, shortly followed. And that wave two included books like Rough and Ready, Dastardly and Muttley, Snagglepuss Chronicles, and the book that we're going to be focusing on in today's conversation, The Jetsons. Now, The Jetsons was penned by today's guest, Jimmy Palmiotti, and drawn by Pierre Brito. Now, Jimmy might be familiar to you as the writer of many things, and also the inker of many things. Uh, He's had a very long and storied career in comics. He's had a hand in bringing to life the adventures of Harley Quinn, Jonah Hex, The Punisher, uh, his own creator-owned characters, Ash and Painkiller Jane, and countless others. If you are a comic book reader, you have come across his work at some point. I reached out to Jimmy to talk about the Jetsons. It's kind of one of the underdogs of the whole line. It's not one that's talked about very much, but it is one that I enjoyed, and I definitely wanted to get Jimmy's take on it. I also haven't had a DC Hanna-Barbera interview for a bit, and I just wanted to kind of dip the foot in the pool, the toe, again. I didn't want it to fade away, I didn't want it to forget, and the longer I'm waiting, you know, the longer these people are are drifting away from the work itself. And one last thing I want to address before we get into the conversation proper. Normally, I, I break my interviews up. I try to keep them around like 30 to 40 minutes. It's It's kind of a standard I set early on, but in the last little while, like probably uh, with the exception of the, the commentary episode that I just posted, the last half dozen episodes that I've done, I think have all been in that kind of one hour zone and nobody seems to be complaining. So I thought I would try releasing Jimmy's interview as a single part and just kind of see what people thought. I did originally 
cut it in half and I was going to release this as two parts, but I also have a number of interviews uh, that I want to get into for July. I've been really busy lately and got some great chats and those, a couple of those are fairly long, so I might have to like chop those up and uh, I've got some Scoob interviews coming up and I want to sort of time some of those interviews to, to land when the uh, Blu-ray and DVD drop, which I think is like July 21st. I feel like that's the right number, but I haven't, I'm not looking at anything to confirm that right now. Yeah, so I'm gonna try this, uh, single interview, single part, uh, see what you guys think. If you have any comments, let me know. But until then, I hope you enjoy my conversation with writer Jimmy Palmiotti, and I will see you guys on the other side. So we're here talking with uh, writer, artist Jimmy Palmiotti. You may know him from, well, he was one of the architects of Marvel Knights uh, way back in the day. Since then, he's also had his name attached to countless scores of books. Probably best known right now for Harley Quinn and probably your, your Jonah Hex stuff as well. Would you say so, Jimmy? <laughs> yeah, I would, say, I would say that. I mean, it depends who you are. You know, some people, Marvel Knights stuff, some people, Painkiller Jane and Ash, some people... Uh, yeah, Harley, Power Girl, Atley, uh, God knows, I did a run of Hawkman, Deadpool, Punisher, you know. The list goes on and on. I've kind of done every mainstream character I want to do, to be honest. Like, I really don't have that one that escaped me because I did work on Red Sonja and I did work on Conan. And I'm like, I was the other day, somebody asked me, like, what have you, haven't you worked on? And I said, well, I've worked on everything I want to work on. So there's a lot of characters. I get offered books all the time, and like I, I got offered Doctor Strange, and I said I, I'm not a fan of Doctor Strange, so please give that gig to somebody <laughs> likes Doctor Strange because you're not going to like what I do with the character, you know, you know. So there's certain characters I just I don't relate to, and I try to stay away from. You mentioned Ash. I mean, Painkiller Jane, I think, had a much higher profile than Ash did. Do people still talk about Ash to you? I have. There isn't a day that goes by where somebody says, are you going to collect it one day? Are there going to be new books for Ash? Whatever happened with Ash? What happened with the film at DreamWorks? <laughs> it's, it's, I will say at least, to be honest, like two or three times a week, somebody will ask me some Ash-related thing. And I tell them the same answer. You know, Joe and I did it, so Joe would have to be available to do it. And... He's busy working at Marvel, so he doesn't really have time for that. Um, but I still do the Painkiller Jane books now and again because we sort of like, you know, Joe's like, yeah, you can run with that character. You like that character more than me anyway, so, you know. Well, that's awesome because Ash was your first creator-owned uh, book, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. And it was, a, it was a, you know, Joe and I met in San Diego Comic-Con and we got along and he was looking for cover work and I got him some cover work at Marvel and he was doing Azrael at DC and... It, you know, we watched the image guys and we're like, oh, we could do that. So we just took our money and we put out Ash uh, was our first comic. And um, it sold decently, you know, for two guys that really nobody knew that well. And then, uh, yeah, within like six issues, uh, DreamWorks called, flew us out to uh, to their um, office in Los Angeles. And we met with the guys there and they uh, bought bought the the character straight out. That's why you haven't seen an Ash movie, because they own it. <laughs> they bought the film rights, you know, film and TV rights right. straight out, and paid us a fortune. And that's and we used the money to do more books and party a lot and travel a lot. So uh, I bought my mom her apartment, you know, she was in, and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, but the character, once we stopped doing it, 
we stopped doing it and and uh that was because of Marvel Knights because we were doing uh we were still doing our own comics and then Marvel came to us and made us an offer we couldn't refuse uh which was basically our books are not great right now we're in chapter 11 uh if we give you some books can you guys put your own spin on it so um so we did that. We picked out a bunch of titles and we made them give us the penthouse of the building on Park Avenue. And <laughs> that was Marvel Knights for a couple of years. And then uh, and then when that when they were out of Chapter 11 and, and I finished my commitment, Joe stayed, went, became editor in chief. I decided I wanted to write. I didn't want to, you know, edit or ink or the other five jobs I was doing. And uh, so I dug in with the writing and that's what I've been doing ever since. I think I probably ran across your stuff. I mean, I was buying some of those books that Tex was doing yeah. uh, at the time that you were probably inking, and uh, yeah. But I think I think Ash was the first book because I was following uh, Joe's work on Azrael. Yep, yep. That was Kevin Owen. That was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I was digging that miniseries. Yeah, and so when uh, when he jumped over and, and launched Event, and it was like, oh, he's doing it with this guy Jimmy Palmiotti, and then that was yeah. kind of like my first awareness of you as kind of a creative entity, and just. Haven't not seen your name on something since. <laughs> I've been working very hard. This um, whole COVID thing has kept me like right now. I'm not working on anything for any company. I finished my commitments for Marvel and DC. I had a couple of books going and I finished up with them. And now I'm just digging in with my Kickstarters and doing some of my own work for a change. I, I, uh, again, it gets harder and harder for me to work for the bigger companies because they have a lot of rules yeah. and um, and it's getting worse because the bigger the ownership is of so Disney and Warner Brothers, the more rules, the more weight, the more, hey, we can't do that because we need to <clears throat> keep the license one way. And, you know, so it gets harder and harder for me to work for the big companies. I love the characters, but I if I can't do what I want to do. I'd rather not waste anybody's time doing it, you know, and people have to buy these books and they're four or five dollars each. I realize how much money that is. So I, I, I try to spare people by taking not taking on gigs I'm not interested in. You got to do the Soderbergh one for them, one for me, one for them, one for me. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm actually at the place where five or six for me and one for them. That's a good place. That's a good place. Yeah, because they'll, they'll keep putting this stuff out. I mean. I, somebody was making me laugh because it was like, oh, you saw Harley Quinn is canceled? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> at 75, but there'll be a new number one. I mean, do you really think it's not going to come out again? You know? Yeah. And I'm like, uh, you know, I'm how many years into this business? I've seen that happen 800 times already. So um, I'm always amazed when somebody thinks it's the last issue or something. I, I'm, I always giggle. It's kind of amazing they let it get that far before kicking you number one in well i mean we we did the first series and it got up to i don't know what is it 40 something and then they did the rebirth and then we got up to 30 something and you know all i know is i think man and i have written at least 115 issues of harley so um i know i had because i have three omnibuses of all our work and that's not even all our work because there's stuff that's like, but that's what i know i needed we needed a break uh, with Harley, that's when we left. We just felt like we kind of did what we needed to do, and then um, they pulled us back in for the Birds of Prey miniseries she's working on now for the Black Label, and that's a little different than what we've been doing on the book. But um, the joke was that, uh, and I'm sure it pissed off some people. The Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey book we're doing now, and the second issue's out in a couple of weeks, takes place around four hours after our last issue. Nice. 
so so the rest of the Harley book went its own direction, and we kind of said, well, let's completely ignore that and just make believe it's you know five hours later, four or five hours later, and that's what we did with the book. So it may piss somebody off, and it also made people like they were happy because they wanted to see a little bit more of that, you know. So we had a lot of people to serve for that one because they wanted to make sure there's enough birds of prey in it. They had the movie coming out, and then you know we were talk, you know we were we were talking to the people from the movie, and we're like, you know, my rule of comics is um, what I do in the comic. That's the films steal from the comics. The comics do not steal from the films. It doesn't go the other way around. <laughs> so there was nothing I took from the movies. They took everything from the comics, and that's the way it should be. To be fair, the Black Label books, I mean, they're not really locked into DC continuity anyway. So like, no, well, that's you just do what I, you kind of want to do anyway. So. You know, that's why they put us on it, because they knew we were going to get a little racy and a little wild with it. And uh, Otherwise, we wouldn't have done it, to be honest with you. I, it's not like we needed the work, but yeah. we just – when Dan did the deal came to us and said, look, you do anything you want for issues, it's kind of hard when that happens. Dan is – Dan, you know, he's going to be very missed up there because he is the guy that would say, yeah, do what you think is right for the character. And, and you know um, – that's how Jonah Hex came about for me. That's how Power Girl came about for me. And that's how Harley came about. He sat there and just said, look, you have a take on the character. Give me your take. You know, so. Talking about Dan is actually a superb segue into uh, the reason why we're here, because Dan was uh, a huge champion of the DC Hanna-Barbera books. He worked hard to actually get those things to happen because he struggled with yeah. uh, getting the rights for that. Oh yeah, I think Warner had the rights all like tangled up with the Looney Tunes rights, and but anyways, he got them, and we yeah. we got these books, and I was honestly surprised. Jetsons was second wave, right? I think so. Yeah, second wave. Yeah, because there was the the original four, then there was Rough and Ready, Dastardly and Muttley, and and uh, Jetsons and Snagglepuss, I think. Yes. So I was I was kind of surprised, not surprised to see your name on it. Uh, I know I'm never surprised to see your name on something because you 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 are very prolific, but I wondered. Oh, Jimmy's got a take on Jetsons? <laughs> like, it didn't seem to really blend with kind of what you're known for. Well, Dan approached me with it, and he said, look, he goes, Jetsons is a tough one because it's it's about the future. It's a very defined future, right? And he says, so it's very defined. And he goes, but I'm bringing it to you because I want a story about family, how important a family is. And he goes, I don't want, I don't, you know, all the bells and whistles of the Jetsons are great, but I need a connection. I need them to connect with each other and the generations that connect. So he said, the thing about the cartoon, it's always been just about, you know, Spacely Sprockets and George screws up. And by the end, you know, it's very honeymooners in space kind of thing. Very sitcom, yeah. Yeah. And the, ki and the kids, you know, um, they would be involved. Their stories would not be as, uh, you know, Elroy and Jane and, and Judy. And it would be they would be kind of like superficial because it was always it was never totally about them in the in the in the animated show. And it was the, the animated show was sort of like I, I felt I liked it when I was a kid, but I watched it again before I did the book. And I realized, OK, as a kid, it was made for my kid brain. Yes. When I watched it, you know. Um, because there were very simple episodes and, you know, a again, cartoons like the Flintstones and the Jetsons, and they were based on the fact that the main character has a great heart, but he screws up, but in the end, everything comes out okay. And when they gave me the Jetsons, they said, we're going to have like a 10 page or eight or 10 page 
intro I need you to do for the back of a book of the Jetsons. And I said, what do you mean intro? He goes, well, get people interested in picking up the books you do. So you have 10 pages that define something different in the Jetsons. And I was, and I kept thinking about the, the robot, you know, um, in the original cartoon, the, uh, well, the, God, very, my brain the very first episode is the Rosie. Yeah. It's getting Rosie. Rosie right? Yeah. So, so, and I kept thinking about Rosie and I'm like saying, if it's really in the future, it's either going to be an AI robot that learns and becomes part of the family. And then I thought, well, what if it actually is part of the family, like physically and mentally and, you know, and then of course the future and technology. And I, so I, so I wrote that first story with, um, with, uh, the grandmother deciding that it was time to, uh, and again, it reminded me, it's very much Soylent Green. I got it from Soylent Green with Edward G. Robinson deciding that he wanted to end his life and move on. But That's I funny. thought, it, sorry, it actually, it reminded me of, uh, Dan DeLillo's Zero K. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No. What is that? I honestly haven't finished the book, but the entire premise is, uh, somebody who is, um, uh, it's a person's mother, and uh, she is going into, like, a, a cryogenically frozen thing so that they can, like, cure it later, and her son is okay. there to kind of, like, bear witness to it, and I was thinking that's so much like having Judy there. And Right. Well, it's funny, because I, because so, so, um, with the idea, I thought, okay, so if we have Grandma, you know, what would George's nightmare be that his mother never dies and is always there, right? <laughs> And and she's and also she becomes the maid, the the person that takes care of everything, the, the matriarch, right? And I thought, you know, and at first I thought maybe you know Elroy and the ma and the grandma would connect, and I said that's kind of easy. And I thought Judy, because Judy has a very progressive thinking in in this in the book, she's kind of like she supports her grandmother's decision. Because I thought Elroy would be a little, it's a little heavy for Elroy, but Judy would be. Like right in that place, and also I can define Judy's relationship with the grandmother right right away. Within five pages, we can know that this girl loves, loves, loves her grandmother, and is willing to and understands how she has to kind of sneak grandma away because because her son is going to lose his mind when he, yeah. he hears about this. So <laughs> I handed that to Dan. I handed the script for the ten page, and Dan's like, uh, "Okay, it's pretty brilliant." that you put the grandmother into the robot. She goes, he goes, but what happens after this? And I said, well, I said, I set up the series, but I said, I want you to pay attention because I'm defining who everybody is based on what the grandmother's doing. So their reactions were all, you know, and, and, and Jane of course is trying to calm George down, but at the same time, Jane is panicking a little too, because she knows what the grandmother means to George. So it's family, right? That's what, that's what Dan wanted, you know, so hopefully I did the first I did the first story and they put it in the back of the book. And some people, you know, I read like only like two or three reviews and they were like, what the hell is he doing? And OK, you know, <laughs> that was pretty uh, common for most of the DC Hanna-Barbera books, though. Yes, yes. And I also had the two, you know, and I read all the other books and I said, OK, they kind of went in and changed like major things. And I was like, I still need to be loyal to, you know, Space Leech Rockets and understand what that is. And then I said, and I can't, even if George's bumbles a little bit, George is in a really intelligent family. Yeah. You know, um, I want to write them intelligent. 
but I need Elroy to age up a little bit because I, I wanted Elroy not to be the smaller kid because I, I also know my weakness is if I write a young kid, I'm going to offend somebody. <laughs> but I thought Elroy, you know, ex- being the explorer, being the kid who's, you know, interested in everything, it makes total sense with Judy, who wants to be a filmmaker, you know, who wants to, who wants to document things. And then, uh, and then I thought, you know, to, to bring it up to date, of course, Jane would be brilliant. Jane would be so smart. She would also understand that on some level, somebody like George is exactly what she needs after dealing with all the madness. She needs somebody she can get down and dirty with, which was George. That was one of my favorite things about the characterizations or, or the new breakdowns of the characters, because everybody else, it was they, they were different, but they were all coming from a place that was very much established within the series. You know, right. Judy was interested in, you know, pop culture and media and stuff, you know, like the hippie porka uh, stuff. Yeah. You know, Elroy was a rambunctious, you know, curious, intelligent kid. George worked at Spacely Sprockets. It's not like yep. a, a huge extrapolation to make him into like an engineer or whatever. No. And Jane was always like the center of the family. Yes. But she was always very much the the homemaker. Right. So to keep her as the center of the family, the family still kind of revolves around Jane very much. Yeah. But taking her into that other level, I really appreciated that. And it, it was done in, in a, not a subtle way, but just not a, like an egregiously obvious way. Well, you know, it, so J- Jane in the cartoon was very, no matter what went on, Jane kind of stayed pretty level-headed. You know, George yeah. lost his crap and and uh, I just thought giving Jane a responsibility, you know, at one point Jane has to tell, bring home the bad news to everybody that a meteor is heading towards the Earth. The Earth only has this much time. And Jane is the one that has to walk in the room with it to George. And, and you know, and like I said, I, I wanted to make it that each one of them was heroic. Each one of them had some kind of sacrifice and some kind of thing that they were stepping up and doing, you know, they weren't just a family, you know, a family like we're going to just watch this family as it falls apart kind of thing. I, I wanted to make it so they had each other's backs and and the concerns, the drama in it were was pretty much that they, they were worried about each other all the time. Or what, what are they going to think? Or if the world's ending, I have to look the kids. I have to look after the kids. And of course, George. Yeah. Uh, in the story, he has a sacrifice. He's, he, he sees himself as, I have to save everybody else. I'm going to do this at a price, at the price for my own. And everyone does a, self, a, a selfless act in the story because they're trying to help. You know, And, and again, I was trying also to the idea that um, we're in a future where war is not a thing and race is not a thing and all these things have been worked out. Right. Because the cartoon, we never saw anything, really. But in the book, I wanted to make, OK, everything's been worked out for everybody. So now we embrace arts. Right. Because let's be honest, if we get rid of all the hate and all the uh, just what's happening in the world, disease, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff, people. And, 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 I'll, and I'll tell you, it's, it's funny because I was thinking about it the other day. You know, we're home for two or three months staying in, right? We're all, we're all in that spot. What do we do when we're home? We go right to the arts. We watch movies. We read books. We, kids are doing art, sitting around drawing and everything. And the yeah. arts, and all of a sudden the art is the most, art's the most ex- important thing in the world besides medicine and science, right? Yeah. And that's what the theme of the Jetsons were. It's like the, the idea that 
this is a seemingly perfect world dealing with a threat, and they deal with the threat as adults and not not a typical comic book with, oh, we're gonna blow up the meteor, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do they were trying to figure out things, you know, and, and um even Elroy's gift to his dad the painting that he gives them, you know, there's this consideration of who that person is and why they want it. Um, it was supposed to be actually in the book. It was supposed to be the Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving poster. Okay. And we could, and we couldn't get the rights to the Norman Rockwell people to sign off on it. So it's a different version, but it was supposed to be, he saved the Norman Rockwell painting and, and gave it to his father. Elroy gave it to his father, George for his birthday. And the Thanksgiving thing was like, that was my whole theme of the thing. Like, no matter what, right. this is the family, and they're going to be having a turkey, and they're going to just show how people should live. So it was a lot of fun to do, and and um, it probably didn't sell that well, but they did put it in the trade book, which I'm very happy for. People either loved it or they hated it, which is always my work. Is like, <laughs> It's like the people who like it really like it, and the people who don't like it really don't like it. You know, one guy said, it's nothing like the cartoon. It's just terrible. Like, why would I care about anybody in this book? And I'm just like, okay, you didn't read it, you know? So I think you've just read like a couple of pages and said, I don't like this. Everybody's talking about things. And that is the other... Well, the irony of that, the irony of that is that if it was exactly like the cartoon, you'd be like, well, I could just watch the cartoon. This isn't as good. (laughs) Well, you know, the whole thing is like, you know, once... It's funny because once they adapt, something from a book you know it's it's hard to it's they're giving you uh, a visual you know you can't i can't do the cartoon if i did the cartoon comics which by the way there were jetsons comics in the 60s it's basically the episodes that you saw that just you know like archie comics you know you kind of you have to change it up it's also kind of a pedantic kind of critique especially when you think that you know you're part of the second wave of the dc hanna-barbera books and you see what was done in Flintstones. You see what was done in Scooby Apocalypse, Wacky Raceland, yeah. uh, Future Quest. Like the precedent was set. These were not going to be direct adaptations right. of these old properties, right? And then the books that you came out with, like Rough and Ready, is very different, <laughs> yeah, from its original. And Snagglepuss, you know, Mark Russell, yeah, taking no, another I... book to another weird level, yeah. Like, yeah. Anytime somebody complains to me about any of the the DC Hanna Barbera books in in that regard, I just it's like if it's not to your taste, fine. But yeah, I mean, they I, were... I did the Jonah Hex Yosemite Sam one, you know, yeah, one shot, and um, somebody said to me like, oh, you know, it it was good, but you know, Yosemite Sam's a little different, this and that. And I said, look, I'm I'm going to tell you something I didn't say to anybody, but every line of dialogue from Yosemite Sam is from a cartoon. <laughs> I just put the name Jonah, or I just put the name of the character he's referring to, but all the lines that, that uh, Yosemite Sam says in the comic are directly from lines he said in cartoon. In the cartoon, I had a five-page list of everything he's ever said in the cartoon, and I worked it into the dialogue of the book. That's great. You know, and, and it works, because you, when you read it, you start laughing, because you realize, yeah, that's exactly... <laughs> what Yosemite Sam, and it was I just did that for myself because I liked the challenge of it, and I thought Jonah Hex Yosemite Sam, like that makes sense. Except you know that makes total sense. It's not really a stretch. Again, I will say we were first offered Wonder Woman, Pepe Le Pew, for me and Amanda to do, and we thought about it for a week, and I we came back and said you know Pepe Le Pew's a little rapey, you know he's a little <laughs> he's he doesn't really work now. 
you know, and and uh, he's not really a post Me Too character, yeah. Yeah, and I was just like, I, we'd rather not do that. And then Dan came back and said, "Well, what do you think about like uh, Yosemite Sam?" And I said, "Jonah Hex and Yosemite Sam." And he's like, "Yeah, sure." And I'm like, "I'll do that." And I said, "That's fun, you know. I could make something fun out of that." To be fair, you could have taken an opportunity to address Pepe Le Pew's creepiness. I could have, but you know, then it, then again. I'm writing a different story, right? Because now I'm now I'm writing a story where I have to yeah. make an of, of how a character acts be an issue. And you probably get roasted for doing that. So yeah, and I, and I actually I think the Pepe Le Pew cartoons are cute and funny. I don't see them. I do too. Yeah, his his character is relentless, you know. But me too, of course. You know, you, you have to be aware of all this stuff. And I just said, well, it's easier. And again, with Jetsons, it's my brain. I always make the female characters the strongest characters in my books. So anybody reading Jetsons knew probably that I do write them strong because I'm surrounded by strong women all the time. They're smart and they're strong and they're a lot more stable than the men I know. I never really made that connection because I was looking at it through the lens of, you know, this is a take on the Jetsons. Yeah. And less through the lens of this is written by you. But yeah, I mean, the main characters really the focus is so much on Judy, Jane, and Rosie. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, not that Elroy and, and George don't have things to do; they have lots of stuff to do. Yeah, I mean, and even but, even Elroy's girlfriend makes her stand with her dad. Yeah, and 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 her mother, right? Because her mother has their, their mother's working with uh, Jane at one point. Again, Dan just kept telling me it's got to be about family, family, family. I know you want to do the gadgets and all the craziness, and I said, eh. I said, you know, I said we're in the future. We have, we wear gadgets. We have the phone that does eight thousand things. I mean, honestly, I, I you know, I, I if I had a room full of futurists like Steven Spielberg, where I can go, okay, give me some, everything's going to be in a hundred years, but you still have to make that part of the story. And I thought, what if the planet had a threat? You know, and then I can do the first, you know, uh, intelligent life coming from out of space. Yeah, I can cover all these things. And then, of course, the dormant city under the water. Yeah, because because my first pitch was the Jetsons were living on those big, long poles in the cities up there. And then George was going to fall off it and live with the Flintstones. You know, the Flintstones were below. They were like kept down, you know. (laughs) So my first pitch was that the Earth was the Flintstones down there and the Jetsons were the higher, they, they kind of evolved and moved up. So they separated themselves from what was down on the earth. And then George would go down and all of a sudden everybody would, we'd see how they thought each other were completely different and they were completely wrong about each other. And it was going to be a political statement. And then they were like, there's no way in hell we're going to let you do that. So was that from DC or from uh, HB? No, DC. You know, okay. from, from yeah, nobody. They, they said, you know, they said people have been always teasing that idea that the that you know because the Jetsons, you never saw the land. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, so when I came back, I said, well, it, I said, Dan, it makes sense. It would be underwater, right? The cities would be underwater. And he's like, yeah, you do whatever you want. And I'm like, well, I said, you know, so the threat has to be from above, outside the world, because they've gone out at one point and come back and realize that this they have to live here. And he's like, yeah, whatever you see it, you know, set the stage for the world. And uh, But you got to get it done in six issues, and it's got to come out on time. <laughs> and then I, I used a guy, that an artist that nobody knew, Pierre Brito, who's uh, in European comics. I wanted somebody that had a different look 
I didn't want to do a typical comic book look. I wanted it to be a little, you know, a little odd looking at, at point. The characters have um, show age a little bit and that kind of stuff. And Pierre was the guy I found. He worked with me on a book called Denver, which was about the future, too. It was about the world getting covered with water. And I said, you want to do another book where there's a lot of water? And he's like, is it in the water? I said, no. I said, it's just a, it's a wreck. I said, although Elroy does go down and, and he's looking for a gift for his dad. So I do have an underwater thing that sets off some explosives. And he's like, ah, it sounds great. You know, he's one of those guys that every page I got, I was like, okay, this is even, it gets better as it goes. But it has a European look to it. You know, yeah. it does not look like the DCU books. And I felt it shouldn't look like the DCU books. I, I, I you know, I, Honestly, I would have loved to have Amanda draw it, but Amanda wasn't available. So I got her to do a bunch of covers, at least. I did wonder, you did an interview at a some con somewhere where you were talking about searching for the right artist. Yeah. And that you'd been searching for a while. And I'd wondered, like, how long that process actually took. And- it, I, I got to be honest with you, like, I, I will... I have to have the right artist for the story, right story. Otherwise, I won't do it. What happens with people's careers are... A great writer will work with a terrible artist, and it doesn't matter what he wrote. People are going to go, oh, that book sucked. Um, So it's as important as having the right kind of sneaker if you're going to run a marathon for me. I have to have somebody that understands what I want to do. I have to have a conversation with the artist about what we're going to do. And I always start with let's do characters before. Let me see how you draw the characters, and we go from there. But I'm, I've always been about that, and I think that was the theme of Marvel Knights, was the right person for the right character. That was our, yeah. that's what we did differently at Marvel Knights. We didn't just give the gig to whoever we could get, we went after people to, to match them, you know. Was Pierre a hard sell to DC, or were they just like whoever you want? No, actually, you know, I showed Dan some stuff, and Dan says there's a starkness like uh, Frank Quietly that I kind of like, and he goes... Yeah. And he says, so is he, can he do a monthly book? And I said, absolutely. And he goes, done. The, the, <laughs> the thing with Dan is he understood I brought in a lot of artists because, you know, um, with Harley Quinn, like John Timms and Chad and all these guys, I, you know, when I did, when I did Jonah Hex, we had a different artist every issue. So I brought in a lot of artists I found. And, and, uh, so they, they've always, DC's always trusted me that if I say, look, I got a new guy, he's really good. They're like, okay, you know, you know what you're doing, so great. Uh, let me just see a page or two. So I've been trusted pretty much. You know, you, you gain that reputation over the years. That if I bring in somebody, they usually not only gonna like him, they're gonna actually put him under contract and hold on to him. And eventually, he'll be off my books onto other books. And that's that's always what happens. And that's and that's good because I want my guys to be successful, have successful careers. So they don't have to stay with me all the time. <laughs> I'm curious the way uh, the way you're describing your interactions with Dan. I know that the whole line only lasted roughly three years. Yeah. And I was just wondering if if Dan's like, yeah, whatever. If it just comes out on time, it's fine. Was that because Dan just trusted you and he just as long as the book comes out on time, or was that because you guys knew that things were winding down? He understood that I did a hundred issues of uh, Jonah Hex and not one was ever late. The Jonah Hex, when it came out the first week of every month, it came out the first 70 issues on time. Not a lot of books do that. So he he, under, yeah. he understands that I'm a deadline person, so he doesn't worry about the deadline. He he knows if I'm looking at 
And part of my job over the years, I've, I've, always, I've been like this silent editor, you know. So we have an editor at D.C., but I'm always like looking at the art and the coloring and the lettering. And, you know, I, I can't you can't take the editor out of me. So I'm always second guessing, looking at things and changing things at the last minute. But it's always to the, you know, for the good of the book, because I feel like once you do a book, it, it exists and that's it. It's not going to you can't change it later on. Yeah. So I want to get it right. But, you know, but I've also I've worked on stuff I hate. Like I've, I've worked on stuff that books where I, everything's wrong with this book and I would complain. But it was like I was a cog, you know, in the series of in the in the process of it. And uh, I didn't have much say. And uh, so part of a lot of my career has been like controlling my own stuff. That's why I do the Kickstarters so much, because it's like I can control these books. Right. Um, I definitely have a vision I want with each of them. So they don't always tie in with the vision of the company. <laughs> and that's why you don't see me doing a ton of stuff. You know, I just do the, the jobs I want to do. Like right now, Amanda and I would do a new Power Girl series in a heartbeat, but they don't want Power Girl book from us. So, OK, that's fair enough. We're not going to do it. Yeah. The fans, of course, want it, but that's not really. <laughs> you would think that has a lot to do with publishing, but publishing has different agendas. But with the with the Hanna Barbera stuff, this was this was done out of love. I mean, this is like this these books were Dan DiDio's love of the characters, dragging in people he trusted to give unique visions of them. More than the superhero books, these were more important to him than than I would say the superhero books, for sure. But one of the amazing things about that whole line was they were some of the most progressive, inclusive, and like courageous books that were being published by any publisher at the time. It was like, you guys and Archie yeah. were doing stuff that nobody else was doing. Yeah. It's just not what you would expect from a licensed book from DC and Hanna-Barbera. No. And you got books like Flintstones and... Snagglepuss, yeah. Yeah, and Snagglepuss, yeah. Uh, which I believe won a GLAAD award. Yeah, yeah. I've been and, nominated uh, for two of those. Sorry? I've been nominated for two GLAAD awards. I've never yeah, one was Harley Quinn and one was one was uh, it was Harley Quinn and Secret Six, I think, with Gail Simone. I worked on with way back okay. when, um, but you know, never won. I mean, I, I don't win awards, by the way. I don't. Uh, <laughs> I I've never won a writing award, and if I was nominated, it's very rare. I'm not just, just the one editing award from yeah, way back. Yeah, but I'm not. I'm not that guy. Like I, I honestly. Um, I kind of, I kind of like if I was a movie director, I would be more like, uh, you know, I'd be the guy that just puts out the different weird ideas and not the guy, not, I'd be more Spielberg and I'd be less, uh, I, cause I, 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 with my books, I try to entertain myself first, right? Yeah. That's all writers, right? You try to, I, would I read this? But, you know, with awards and stuff, I, I don't write the kind of stuff people give awards for. I write the things that people want to read. Hopefully, and I write stuff that's weird. I write, I like to, I think part of the, why I thought I could write was I've read every story, so I'm not going to go where you think I'm going to go now. And that's always been my, my goal with the books is like, wherever you think this is going, I'm going to take you somewhere else. Um, I don't, I hate, I, it's why I don't like superhero comics so much because they pretty much do the same thing over and over Batman and the Joker, I can't even read a Batman and Joker story. I just don't care anymore. Yeah. And I think when they gave Harley to Amanda and I, we just said, okay, 
we're going to write a book where it's not about the supervillain. It's just going to be about her trying to live day by day, day by day. And we're not going to take the camera away from her. Like it's not going to be a Superman story where Jimmy Olsen's in half the issue. It's going to be Harley 24 seven. When you, when you read this book, you're following her. And, um, and for Jetsons, the same thing. It's always about them. They're on every page, right? Uh, I, yeah, that was something I really enjoyed about it because, I mean, there's a lot going on in those six issues. Like, yeah. you've got the world ending, you've got the the relationship dynamics that are going on, you've got the dealing with, you know, the grandmother going into the AI, you've got, it goes on and on. But it's all, you're not looking at how this is affecting the rest of the world. You're only looking at how this is affecting family. this one core family yeah. And a couple of periphery characters who are also very much in a family dynamic, yeah, and tied into their family dynamic, and it was it was just a lot more intimate, and it just felt less staged in a way. Yeah, well, because if, if you do if you do a world, so if you like every disaster movie we see, right? We cut to Russia, and it's raining snow, it's hailing, you know, snow, and you cut to this place. You, you can do that kind of story, but the thing that happens is you lose the characters, you know. Yeah. And in the movies, you always have that one guy who's trying to warn everybody and then of course the world goes to shit and they all go back to him and it's like you're, he's the only one now that can save us because he's the guy that thought of it first I've read that a million times right you know and I've seen that movie a million times and with Jetsons I do set up a big it's a big thing that's happening this is something that's going to change the planet or end the planet and I thought okay but is it really going to do that is the meteor going to hit it is it a meteor you know what I mean like these things I, I love because I, I love science. I love watching science fiction. I have no clue with where it's going. I, I, yeah. I thrill to that, to watch a movie where it's like it does have the moments where I'm like, yes, but it also like messes with my head. That's like, you know, like David Lynch is a great example. You never know where he's going to go <laughs> in the thing. And he does go abstract. The only thing is you do know he will go abstract. So there is a certain pattern in his work that, uh, you know, you expect. So again, that he becomes his own enemy when he does that because 10 films in, you realize that everything is going to be weird and, uh, and, and, and psychological. But with the Jetsons, I thought, okay, I, I have to make something that if people like the cartoon, they're going to like it, but I have to sell an audience. Like Dan said, Dan said, look, it's going to be a hard sell no matter what you do because it's the Jetsons. He says, nobody sat there and woke up and said, boy, I wish there was a Jetsons comic. <laughs> you know, and uh, he he's a hundred percent right. <laughs> but it did sell enough to get a trade, you know. So I was very happy about that. I did a quick reread of the series just to freshen up on it last night, and just kind of dovetailing with what we were just talking about. Like the fifth issue alone is the plot of a film. Like it's got the the Armageddon kind of thing where they're taking the bomb up to the asteroid and whatever. And it's like other books that would be the entire six issues. <laughs> yeah. Or that would be the two and a half hour movie. And that was like, that's just one of the things that we're trying. Well, yeah. You know what? It's funny. When I wrote this story, I, I had a, uh, I have a giant board that I wrote down. I write each character and what their kind of story is. And then I said, okay, and then here's where the big thing happens. And here's where that big thing happens. And here's where that big thing happens. How would these characters react when they know this is going on? And how would she, and how would they react with each other? And then, and then, you know, so it's complicated because it keeps weaving. The story kept weaving and the characters kept weaving. You know, Elroy had his story with his girl. The girl had the story with her parents. George had the story with Spacely, who had his own agenda. 
and then the girl that worked has basically had her own agenda, and then how Jane has her own three different things going on, and Judy has her assignment, and the world is happening, and her dad, this is happening to her dad, and how is she dealing with this? And then, and then his grandma, the robot, and uh, you know, it's just, I actually was a little overwhelmed writing it because I was laughing. I'm, I, you know, I was, I was apologizing <laughs> to Pierre because I'm like, oh, Pierre, trust me, by the time you read it, it all makes sense. You know, I said, I, it, it's, it's just a lot of big moments. But I also, I don't like deconstructed comics. I don't like a comic that's 25 pages that could be told in three pages. Yeah. I, don't li- I don't like it. I feel like. People spend their hard-earned money on this stuff. I, I want them to sit down and dig in. And I and I feel like, um, you know, it's funny. I, like, I'll use films as comparisons all the time. I love Tarantino movies because there's a lot to absorb. You, on the surface, you watch it, and that was satisfying and everything. And then you go back and watch it, and his, he's, his attention is into the details, into the interaction between characters. And, you know, a lot of friends of mine were saying, you know, that ah, once upon a time in Hollywood, eh, I didn't like it, you know, and I went to see it and I was like, I love this movie. There's so much going on. The idea, the idea that a guy is dealing with the fact that his style of acting is leaving and there's a new wave coming in and he's trying to comprehend it. and He has to learn it from an 11 year old girl has to explain the world to him. That's how out of it he is. Like, I thought there was so many brilliant things. Did you see the movie, or am I talking about I did, yeah, no. Okay. I saw it, yeah. Yeah, there was so many stories going on in that movie. And and then, of course, DiCaprio with his his, uh, margaritas yelling at hippies. Like, that just, that stuff just makes me laugh. But it's, it's a really complicated movie, and people said it had no story. And I said, oh, my God, how can you say that had no story? It had so many stories going on. But what it did is it captured a moment in time and how it was changing, you know, and that's what I thought Jetsons should be is like, I'm going to capture a moment in time where change is happening. It's not just going to be about George left his briefcase in the car and the car got stolen and what was in the briefcase. It's easy to do that. Right. But it's harder to say, here's the lives that we know. And here's, here's what's going to change them. How are they going to act with this change? Are they going to step up and be, Future people, or they're going to react like us and start yelling and breaking windows, you know? Well, you also don't betray the sort of concept that you lay down early on where you said, you know, we solved everything. Right. And this is essentially a utopia, and things are going wrong. Like, the world is ending, George steals Spacely's <laughs> life yacht that he was going to, and yep. and nobody nobody changes who they are. Like, right. Spacely's upset, but... It's not like he suddenly turns into the villain or something. Like, right? Everybody still maintains some reason and some rationality, and it's like let's solve this problem together. Right. And and I could see where if somebody read it, they'd go, "Well, where's the tension in that?" And I said, "Well, the tension is external." Yeah. Right. And it and its reaction to external tension because I didn't want to have Spacely being the guy that breaks his furniture and loses his mind. And even even the the stuff with the alien, the alien comes and he's talking about the end of things. He's talking about how the world is like he has a whole his own story he's bringing into this where they, you know, where they're kind of trying to relate to it and process what's going on, you know. Um, And I wanted to get the moment where Jane and and, uh, 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 George have like that moment, like I'm never going to see you again. There's a chance I'm not going to be with you again. 
how am I, and I have to do this in front of the kids. How am I going to do, you know, so I like that emotional beats and, it, you know, that kind of stuff. And I, I just feel like I said, if we're going to invest in six issues, it's up to me to make the reader invest in the characters. I have to, you have to relate to them. No, everybody I think can understand how all of them feel in this book because they're all dealing with regular emotion stuff that families deal with all the time. Even, oh, like yeah, the alien, when he, when he tells them the story of basically what happened, like he essentially says, we uh, made a mistake, our bad, we kind of trashed your world. Yeah. Like you established very early on, quite a bit of the human population dies in the original Cataclysm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they're not all of a sudden, you know, throwing sticks and stones at this guy and, and burning him on a stake. They're like, oh, okay, let's deal with this. Let's work through this. Let's figure this out. It's adult. It's adult stuff. You know, we. I always say it's a good message for uh, right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always say when we're kids, we're taught to act like an adult. But what happens when we're living right now in a world where adults are not acting like adults? I mean, we, we have a uh, people inciting riots. Presidents not taking responsibility. We're taught to adults take responsibility, right? Yeah. The alien comes out and right away he takes responsibility for what he did. So how do you attack somebody who's telling you? I screwed up. I messed up. I did this. You know, you can be angry. And how can I fix it? But you can't, you can't go caveman on them because it doesn't make sense to what, you know, what's going on. I just thought, it, like I said, it's the future I want in the Jetsons, you know. And again, you've seen Soylent Green? Have you seen it? Oh, years ago. Years and years ago. There's a great scene where Edward G. Robinson decides that the world is getting too hard for him to live anymore. And he checks into this clinic and they give him a robe and they put on beautiful music and the gas slowly seeps in and he, you know, and he passes away. And it was the most, it was for me as a kid processing that because the movie came out in 70, 71. I probably was nine, eight or nine years old. And I remember I left the theater and forget the main theme of the, the movie. Um, and, and by the way, that 1970 movie or I think it's 70. Um, has a scene where Edward G. Robinson's looking at a tomato and he says, you know, they warned us about global warming and now look at the world. And that's a 1970 movie, right? That movie's so crazy. But I remember the process he goes through when he's dying was so, to me, it was so like humane. And so, like, I remember I'd be like, I don't know, maybe I, what music would I pick if I was going to be my last music? <laughs> You know, because he asked for classical, and then he asked to see the co what color is his favorite color, and he said orange. And so they had a film with orange flowers and stuff. And that's inspired me for the beginning of the story with the grandmother, because I'm like, of course, in the future, if you felt like you wanted to go, that's your choice. Because we're not dealing with mental problems where somebody's insane and they want to go, or they're suicidal. Or, no, we're, we're beyond that. Now it's just like, I think I want to go to whatever my next stage is, or you have the choice. You can be you can be planted, you can be downloaded and still be alive, but in a robot body. Like, it's such a humane choice, you know? Instead of becoming frail and then becoming a burden to people, she actually flips it and says, not only am I not a burden, but I'm actually going to help the family forever now. I'm going to be alive forever. And I'm going to help watch my kids grow up and I'm going to be there forever. And of course, George is like, oh, my God, you know, like he's he's sad about losing his mom until he realizes she's in the in the uh, in the robot. And, yeah. But 
what a weird thing, right? Because imagine your mom never died and she was just became a robot in your house. She'd be like, <laughs> I don't know if I like this, you know. Um, but well, you do establish too that she's 124 when she makes the choice. Yes, yes. Like she's lived a full life. Yeah, she lives a very full life, but she still doesn't lose her life, right? She's still there to back him up, and she's part of, you know, she's the the voice for George, right? Mom's voice. So when George is going through the hardest stuff, you know, she comes behind him and uh, Rosie sits with him and talks it out with him, you know, like a mom would do his son, but like a mom would do an older son because George is in his, you know, maybe he's 52 or something. I don't know, 48, 52. I think he was celebrating his 40th birthday. 40th birthday, okay, 40, yeah, so yeah. 40. And um, so he has conversations with his mom that are like really heavy. But he puts the weight on her like she's been around longer, so she's going to know. That's the respect of that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So Jetsons is always is the cartoon's been this is the world we hope and one day it'll be. And for me, that's when I wrote it. This is the book. This is the way I hope the world is on some level that we can get to that point where uh, we can talk stuff out and we don't have to be afraid to talk or of emotions we don't have to be you know because we have fear we have you know we carry a weight all of us have a weight and uh things deal with things like shame deal things with like i should have done this i could have done that you know regret and all that stuff and all these things are stuff that we create and hold right and unless we have help getting them out unless we drag things out into the light the things we hold for our whole life, and it influences what we do. We tell each other things when we're younger. Oh, I was never really that smart, or um, I was never great at this. Or we tell us, we keep retelling ourselves these things because it feels safe to say it. We found safety in it at one point, and then when we become older, it actually becomes bad crutches and becomes bad habits. Yeah. You know, so it's I, so that's to me, that kind of stuff is always very, very interesting to look at. You know, and again, I like to use the expression, you know, pull things into the light, really examine the things that really are upsetting to you and try to slow it down and look at it and get it and figure it out. And any of those emotions, once you take them out into the light, whether it's uh, regret or shame or anything, once you talk it out and figure it out, they actually go away because they don't grow in the light. They only grow in the dark. And I know it's a very philosophical type thing, but it has everything to do with characters growing when you're writing. Because you can't you can't just have people be the one person all the time. They have to be challenged and they have to they have to think up. I like to say think up, you know, um, <laughs> it, it's an interesting thing because you don't want to write. It's easy to write the Hulk being mad all the time but the hulk's more interesting when he slows down and he's not mad and he's trying to figure out something and then you start seeing less of the monster and you start seeing more of the man yeah. and that's what draws you for the to the character right because if he was the monster the whole time you can't relate to him you know and so with the hulk we always i remember the old comics i used to read i always felt bad like oh he's so misunderstood or you know the thing had the same thing right johnny and the thing thing the thing was so heartbroken about who he was because he looked like a rock and you know he, he everybody judged him by how he looked so of course he was angry all the time but the reality was he was sad all the time and that's what i loved about that comic because the fantastic four was the best and first comic book family comic yeah you know where we saw all the characters grow like johnny would pick on ben 
And then Reed would say, you know why Ben's doing this? It's like this. And then Johnny would be like, oh, I kind of feel bad I did that. And then he tries to throw a birthday party for the thing. And of course, he throws a pie in his face and it goes back again. But that character growth was what made that book so great when it when it first came out. And uh, it has to be in it has to be in your writing. Otherwise, you're just writing characters running around. It doesn't have any it doesn't have any weight. You did quite a bit of world building in that first preview story uh, that ran as a backup. And you mentioned earlier in the conversation, Dan asked you what's next. Because you'd already done that world building, did you know mostly where you were going to go with it? Or were you kind of, did you have to pivot there? <laughs> I, 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 so when I wrote that short story, I, I wanted to, Pierre and I talked about the designs of the next life building, you know, and, uh, and the ships, I said, look, you know, they had the flying cross and the Jetsons. We have to have that. Um, but it still should be skyscraper, and we have to put gardens, and we have to have everything being grown here. So we have to redesign the buildings to be more green. And, you know, we, we so we talked about how – I tried to figure out, like, how would they live? How would this these people function above the water? And they'd have their ecosystem in the buildings, and they'd have – you know, you'd be dealing with different things. And and they also, there would be scavengers. I, I did less about the scavengers because I thought too much of going underground, under the water to get stuff would be another story. Even though Elroy goes there, we I wanted the hint of the world. Here's what happened. But as a Jetsons, the, the story was always going to be about a threat that was not what everybody thinks it is. Okay. But we would see the characters act on the threat. And we would see how they were going to step up to fight it. And that's the growth of each character was how they went to fight it. You know, even Elroy is like a cheerleader in it. You know, like we can do it. You know, we, Elroy is young enough to really believe that if he puts his mind to something, he can still do it. And we see that in young people, right? They think, you know, yeah. they're going to protest and things are going to change. And then older people say, oh, yeah, I remember the protests from maybe, you know, Vietnam <laughs> and then, and, you know, they're looking at what they remember instead of the bigger picture where there always is change uh, with that kind of thing. So I had the basic premise. And then as you write the characters, they kind of sneak into your brain and you start doing it. I mean, I even did a, I even did a, a um, you know, George tripping up with the door. You know, I did some classic George stuff in it because I, yeah. I have to do a nod like him getting electrocuted by all the little weird lizards, the, uh, you know, inside the inside the machinery and stuff. I said, I got to have to do a little bit of that be, for the for the readers that keep saying, you know, oh, will this be, is this really like the Jetsons or not, you know? But as you do it, you get less and less concerned about what other people are doing. And by the time the first issue came out, the series was done. Yeah. So when it came out, you know, I was reading the reviews. And again, you know, some people didn't like it. Some people loved it. I felt the people who read it liked it more than the people who didn't read it. <laughs> because when you do a review and the person only talks about the first 10 pages of a book, then you know that they didn't really read it. You know, yeah. um, I always tell my artists when I give them a script, you have to read it from beginning to end. Do not stop in the middle and start drawing because something at the end of the story is going to is going to influence how you do the beginning. So you have to read it all the way through and then you can draw it. Do not open page one and just start drawing because you're going to regret doing that on some level. And that's how people read. And that's how people look at, but you know, they watch 10 minutes of a show. Ah, I don't like it. Yeah. We all have a friend like that, right? I don't like, it. I don't like, it. <laughs> they try food once and they go, I don't like it. And all of a sudden they'll never eat anything like in that family of foods again. You're like, ah, it's exhausting. 
You had said uh, you said you wanted Amanda to draw it, but she didn't have time. Yeah. Considering you guys do cohabitate. Yes. Was she involved at all in the development of the story? Um, in the first, I think the first part, she uh, the prologue, we wrote it together. And then when it went to the series, I think uh, it's just me after that. I think it was just me. Uh, she got really busy. Okay. But, you know, but I talk out everything with her. You know, we every meal we share, I, you know, I say, look, I got this idea. And then she'll go, oh, that's great. Or she'll go, oh, you know, it's kind of, wouldn't it be better if this guy did this and that? And I said, oh, that's not a bad idea. Like, bouncing ideas is great because we're always, writers are always influenced by other things anyway. So, um, and she has a really good ear for stuff. She's a great dialogue person. Amanda's like, Story-wise, she she's not great. Like for the, you know, it's not her strong point to do a story like this where she has to figure out six issues. Yeah, everything. Yeah. She could do it, but she'd rather not. But but boy, she's great on dialogue. If I put some dialogue down and she reworks it, it comes to life. Like she has a, she definitely has this really good talent for that. But visually, she's one of the few artists that her artwork looks at you the reader the characters look at you and it's why people like her artwork so much is because her characters actually look at you while you're reading the book and i i'm giving i'm giving you like a little behind the door thing when you look at amanda's work the characters kind of look at you and they smile and wink at you and they're charming but she also comes from the joe kubert school joe kubert's her teacher uh was her teacher who joe said if, if you need the dialogue on the page you failed with your art you should be able to read it without dialogue. So Amanda's stuff, you can actually read it without any of the dialogue. You can see what's going on. And not everybody has that. And, you know, people, I, I had one or two comic artists I know that really excellent artists, they go, I don't understand why Amanda's so popular. She's good, but I don't understand it. And then Darwin Cook would used to jump in and go, you're an idiot, you know, and explain <laughs> it, explain to them that, you know, her storytelling is all there. It doesn't even, it goes beyond the drawing. It, she makes a connection with the reader. The characters kind of smile, they smirk, they have backgrounds, there's storytelling in the way they're leaning, and that's what makes a great comic artist. There's, we don't have a lot of them, honestly. Yeah. There's a handful of great comic artists, and then there's a lot of great people that can draw. That's actually really well put. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my last question about the series is, Jetsons obviously followed the template of the Flintstones, came out after the Flintstones, and wasn't as successful as the Flintstones. Seeing as your series I, followed... I, I gotta be honest, I, I didn't read the Flintstones. That's what I was gonna ask. I de I, not before I did my book. I did because my Flintstones really made kind of a splash. Yes. It was the first one, too. You know? Yeah. Um, so when you're the first one out of the gate, instead of number five, you're usually getting a lot more attention. I just kind of wondered if you felt the... Because, again, the, the similarity between the Flintstones and the, and the Jetsons, and, and even you said that you were thinking of using the Flintstones in your story, yeah. if you just kind of felt like there was some connective tissue there or, or a, a precedent that had been set kind of for you to follow. No, I, I actually didn't follow it at all. You know, Amanda did a cover for the Flintstones when they were in a shoe store. I remember she did one of the yeah. covers. I remember looking at the cover and going, that's really silly and funny. And I'm like, mm, Jetsons is not going to be like that. Like, I, I didn't understand what the book was. And uh, to be honest with you, you know, Dan said, I want your vision. And if I read the Flintstones, it might have influenced what I did. That's fair. Or, or this or the space I was going to inhabit. And uh, so I felt like I shouldn't read it until I'm done. 
and then read it. But it was getting all this critical acclaim, and, and I'm forgetting his name now. Uh, uh, Russell? Uh, Mark, Mark Russell. Mark Russell. He's like a writer's writer, right? He's like a really good writer. I, I don't, I'm not in that class of writer, you know, like, <laughs> he, he's like, he's like a, a real writer. He's got, you know, Amanda had books of his, uh, that he had, you know, before he did comics, the conversation with God or something like that. One, something like a book like that. Um, yeah, he had, uh, two books before then. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought it was like, uh, he's a real writer. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm just winging it. I, I, I still feel that way and it sucks that I still feel that way, but it also, <laughs> it also keeps me working harder. I'm trying so hard to get better all the time, you know. To tell a better story. Keeps you humble. Yeah, I, I, you know, like I said, that's like a real right. Like I, you know, I look at Grant Morrison and Warren Ellis and and, and you know Al Moore and Garth Ennis and and like I always say, those are like a real, real art, real writers. You know, I, I'm a visual writer. I, I definitely see what I'm writing and I get it. You know, I'm not trying to impress. There's a writers too that try to impress the reader. They're trying to show them how much they can do and yeah. all their tricks. I'm not that guy. Uh, I, I I actually, my whole thing is I want to care about what I'm writing. So if I care about it, I feel like I'm winning. Um, I did a book called Monolith, which no, you know, again, I remember that one, yeah, yeah. And it, I think it's one of my best books I've written because I go back to read it and it's still pretty good, which is unlike you know, I, I'm I'm always like weirded out when I read my own stuff and I'm like I wrote that like you know. <laughs> I have that experience too. Yeah, and and I had and I when I did that, there was a writer, uh, um, God, famous, famous science fiction writer. He died not too long ago. Um, Harlan Ellison. Yeah, Harlan Ellison got a copy of the book of Monolith. Yeah, of Monolith number one and two, I guess, which which had the main story in it. And he and Harlan sent a note to the editor and said, "This is the best comic I've read come out of you guys in like twenty years." Wow. And the editor didn't tell me that till like issue nine or something. He said, oh, by the way, did, did I tell you that Harlan Ellison wrote a note about your book? And I'm like, why isn't that a quote on the freaking book? What's wrong with you? Like, <laughs> and I was like, it was so like flattering to me. Like, I was like, holy shit. Like, that's like a real writer. You know, they should have put that on the book. Oh, well, would Harlan have let them? <laughs> Who knows? Right. Who knows? It might have been just said to. But it, but like to hear that, like. It, That's amazing. It, it elevates your brain. Like you, you want to do better. And I, I'm constantly trying to make the next book better. With my Kickstarter, I actually rewrite the books like three or four times. I, I write them, and then I get the art and I rewrite it, and I let it sit for a week or two, and I look at it again, and I'm like, okay, I don't really care about this person here. So, what can I do dialogue-wise? to make me either hate this person more or like him more or what can I, what obnoxious thing can I say to make me hate that guy just a tiny bit more, <laughs> you know? So the great thing about doing your own books is you can keep editing and basically writing is about editing. Cause yeah. I do, I put the stuff down and then I edit, 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 edit. And then I get the art and I have to edit it more because sometimes the artists don't follow the script exactly. So you have to kind of rewrite things to fit the page. Because, you know, it's an artist. It's an interpretation. That's what the great thing about comics is one day they'll do somebody will write a story and give it to 15 different artists to do. And that's going to be the most interesting book you've ever seen because it's going to be so different. You know, well, it's kind of like what they say about movies, how movies get made like three times. There's when the script gets written, when the film right. gets filmed and then when it gets in the editing room. Yeah. Movie. Comics is the same, right? Like there, you write the script and then the artist interprets it and then. Yep. I mean, movies are tough, though, man. You know, I, I have a, I have, <laughs> I have a, 
I did a book called Random Acts of Violence, and uh, the movie adaptation of it comes out in a month, I think. It's uh, Jay Baruchel, and, and uh, it comes out. I think it's be on video or on demand or something. And it's, you know, movies are tough, man. I, I went up there, and I'm a producer on it, and uh, I, I call it a silent producer, but I was on the set. It's a version of my story. You know, it's like a it's like a, a version of it. It's not exactly my story. <laughs> but I enjoyed it, you know, because it's like, oh, I didn't even think of that, and that goes a different way. And I think that's the art part of it, is the interpretation of something. Uh, when somebody remakes a song and makes it their own, you know. Yeah. I, loved, I loved that part of it where I could actually see the artist looking at the inspiration and then going somewhere else, you know. And that's why we get excited when uh, uh, Batman has a new writing and a new artist. You know, it's like, oh, I want to see what they do. And that's the only reason these characters are still around is because fresh voices all the time. Yeah. Otherwise, they'd reprint old issues. It's healthy to have that Stephen King attitude where it's like, you'll always have your book. Right. And just be absolutely what, whatever somebody else does with it, yeah. Look, I, I, I wrote Painkiller Jane, and then I watched a TV show that sort of resembled it. And um, <laughs> I even wrote an episode where it was probably the closest. I wrote the 13th episode of Painkiller Jane, and it was the closest to the character. But it every director that got an episode decided to change something. And it was so bizarre, because they don't even do that on TV now. Now they're pretty consistent, you know? Cause no, we, directors are just there to kind of like... Yeah. Well, Make it happen, we, yeah. We binge watch, so you can't fuck with it. Because <laughs> when we binge watch, it's like it never stopped. You know, it's like it's keep going. So you can't mess with things anymore. The older TV shows would mess with stuff because people didn't binge watch them. Yeah. You know, so episode uh, two episodes of Columbo, they're a little different. Sometimes the format's different. You don't even notice it. But when you binge watch shows now, they're all the same. Even though you see a different director... Uh, but you'll see the same writer, but it's so close to the last one because they don't want to alienate you from the story. Yeah. It's it's just really interesting. Comics, the worst thing to do is have a miniseries and have a different artist on issue four. You know, I agree. Not, nothing destroys you like that. Even if it's a great artist. Even if it's a great artist, it's still it's still just you. Yeah, it's it blows the consistency. Yeah, it does, man. It does. I never liked fill-in artists. I never liked them. I'm like, don't put the book out. You know, wait for the guy. Or as I always say, the guy's been late with every book he's ever done. Why do you think he's going to be on time for yours now? <laughs> you know? Uh, but anyway, anyway. Just wait till it's done and then release it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I guess uh, last question would just be... You might have already covered this in, in a couple of your longer answers, but uh, your, your takeaway from doing the Jetsons, kind of overall memory of, of working in the, the DC Hanna-Barbera pool. I, I, uh, I fell in love with the characters. If they asked me to write a follow-up, I would do it in a heartbeat, because now I feel like I know them. It did say the beginning, or the end of the beginning, or whatever, right? Yeah, or... that's, I put that in there, because I think it says in the last page, uh, I have it in front of me, yeah, end of the beginning, because it's the the new world that they're in, right? Yeah. So it's the end of, it's the end of the beginning of the story, and they're all having a picnic, how sweet is that? But I also did, you know, I, I, I had the, th you noticed it, of course, I had the theme going, for the last page, it's meet George Jetson, his boy Elroy. Yeah. Elroy's girlfriend Lake is added in. Grandma Rosie and the alien friend O meet the Jetson. Um, <laughs> that was me because I had to hear the music while it was going. But I would I would write it again in a heartbeat if there was an audience. I know at some point they will remake this property as a film or a something, 
and they will steal stuff from this book. <laughs> I put my money on it. It'll get in someone's hand and go, oh, you know what? We should use that idea there. Or maybe Rosie should be the grandmother or something. They'll use something from this book if they do their research. There is a Jetsons project in development somewhere right there, now. There was, yeah. I don't know if it's still, you know, like everything now. Who knows, right? Yeah. E- e- the thing with Hollywood is egos. They don't want to give the comic people too much credit. We know that by every movie we've ever seen. Yeah. Um, they don't want to give them too much credit because it's their movie. So uh, we deal with that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Is there anything? I mean, you said you got a Kickstarter going. No, Kickstarter's done. But I will say I have a website called paperfilms.com. And you pretty much it's we sell original art on it. I have. All my books you can digitally download. You can even send in books to get signed. We offer that service. And everything is, me and Amanda, we do everything on the website. So there's tons of stuff, tons to read. And there's even scripts you can buy for 99 cents, digital downloads for 99 cents. You know, I try to make the books really cheap. So, you know, you can download it and read it on a plane if you want to get back on a plane again. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you'll get that middle seat for half price. That's what I hear, you know. But, um no, so yeah, paperfilms.com is it. And, you know, I do Kickstarters regularly, so just be on the lookout and follow me on Twitter. I'm Jimmy Palmiotti on Twitter. Um, and that's my only social media except for Instagram, which is just all photos and pictures. So I don't do Facebook. Well, that's all I have. So thanks so much for sharing all your memories and feelings about the Jetsons comic book, which some of us read. <laughs> yeah. It is available, so, you know, you can get it on Amazon. You can. You yeah. can. Yeah. Yeah, so thanks, Jimmy. Right. Take care, and uh, thank you. We'll, we'll see you in the uh, in the comic stores when they reopen. In the funny books. Good talking to you. You take care. Ciao. And that concludes my conversation with the writer for DC Hanna Barbera's The Jetsons, Jimmy Palmiotti. I hope you guys enjoyed that chat. I certainly enjoyed getting into contact with Jimmy and talking about what I think is one of the more underrated DC Hanna-Barbera books. If you're curious about checking it out, it is currently available in trade paperback. I think we mentioned that in the uh, body of the interview. You can find that at any of your local comic shops, your uh, brick-and-mortar booksellers, and uh, online as well through Amazon or wherever. And if listening to me and Jimmy chat has piqued your curiosity about other things that uh, Jimmy might be up to, feel free to check him out on social media uh, and on the web. You can find him at paperfilms.com and you can also find him on Twitter at jpalmiotti. And he's also on Instagram, uh, just at jimmypalmiotti. Check his stuff out. He's he's usually got a Kickstarter going. See what he's up to and uh, give him a like and a follow. And if you're curious about what's going on, with the podcast, you can follow me on social media. I am uh, available on Twitter at Scooby Doo Cast. I'm on Facebook, podcast named Scooby Doo. Also, Instagram at a podcast named Scooby Doo. There is the WordPress blog where I've been posting short interviews with uh, cover artists from the Scooby Apocalypse comic book, also from DC Hanna Barbera. Uh, I've been calling that the Apocalypse Variations, and uh, that's Scooby Cast.wordpress.com. And I also, when the spirit moves me, post reviews of other Scooby Doo media or any other writerly thing that kind of pops into my head. I don't post there as often as I'd like, but with the uh, Apocalypse Variations, there's been a little more activity at the uh, blog than there usually is, which makes me happy. So if you're checking out my social media, like, follow, subscribe, and share uh, if and when you can. Word of mouth, a powerful tool. 
If you know anybody else who likes animation, if you know anybody else who likes comic books, Jimmy Palmiotti, Scooby-Doo, all of that sort of stuff, feel free to pass it along. Share it on your social media. It's a good thing. And that's pretty much all that I have for you all. I was going to actually announce who the next interview is going to be, but I have a few of them kind of on deck and I'm not sure which one I'm going to go with at this point. Uh, I I was sure and then it typically, you know, that thing, it happens in your head and, and you're like, no, I need to rethink this. So not going to say it right now, but uh, I do have a full July coming up and uh, looking forward to also a busy August, so I'm gonna try and get the content coming out as weekly as I can, which is a little bit different for this podcast, especially in the summer. Summer is usually when the bottom drops out of everything, at least for my schedule. But just stay tuned to the social media, and uh, that's that's where I'll announce kind of who's coming up. And uh, yeah, there you go. So thanks again so much for joining me. Thanks for supporting the show, uh, downloading, and uh, spending the time to listen to these chats that I have with uh, interesting people who worked on Scooby-Doo and other kind of animated nonsense. It's not really nonsense. Take care, everybody. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time on a podcast named Scooby-Doo. Meet George Jetson. His boy, Alan.